0: I want you to see something here. So Paul is the first anti-missionary of Christianity. It's not enough for him to stay in one place. He has to go. He's got the go in him, and he's going to go, and he's going to bring this message of killing Christians and destroying this gospel. Do you see that God has put something in Paul? Paul? He was going to be a missionary either way. (laughs) It was either going to be for or or against. He was trained in Greek. He understood the Greek mindset. He understood that he was a a Roman citizen. He, He had rights in the Roman Empire. Then he gets trained under Gamaliel, under the premier Jewish leader. All of this training is all part of God's destiny for him. So, in Acts 9, we have his conversion account. One of the most dramatic conversions in all of history. He is visited by Jesus as he's with a group. They're on their way to Damascus. They're on their way to Damascus. They're on the road to Damascus where he is leading a group that is going to kill the Christians there. And Jesus appears to him, speaks to him, he goes blind, and Jesus says these words to him, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. I am sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. It doesn't get any more dramatic than this. Jesus says, Paul, you are persecuting me. Paul's, Paul's trying to do the math in his head. I'm not persecuting you. I'm persecuting people. This had a huge impact on him on his later theology, that the, the people are the body of Christ. What you do to Christians, you are doing to Jesus. We are, he writes in First Corinthians 12, we are the members of the body of Christ. Jesus is now the head. We are actually the body of Christ. We are an extension of Christ. So when somebody persecutes you and me, they are persecuting for real Jesus. This greatly affected his theology, this experience. He goes blind for three days until Ananias comes because of a vision, goes to him, prays for his healing of his eyes, and um, that he would be baptized in the Holy Spirit. But this blindness that he had for three days had a huge impact on him. Because when he went physically blind at the very same time, The eyes of his heart were opened, and he could see the truth. And he's overwhelmed throughout his ministry. This is key. It doesn't matter how zealous people are. It doesn't matter how sincere they are. They can be blind spiritually. He knows it because he was blind. He says in 2 Corinthians, the God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving. What is he referencing? His own blindness. You can be sincere. You can believe in God. You can be doing what you're doing in the name of God. And you can be absolutely wrong. I, I'm not even going go to go into ISIS and other groups that are, are sincere doing something with all of their hearts, sacrificing their own lives, and be totally and completely wrong. He prays in Ephesians 1, because he sees this as key, that God, and he's writing to Christians, here's the key, that God might open the eyes of your heart as to what his inheritance is, what, how he feels about you, that you are the bride of Christ, that, that, that all the enemy is under your feet. He's praying the eyes of our heart would be open, that we would not be so controlled by our, our physical eyes and what we see and what seems to be true, but that the eyes of our hearts would be open. His conversion experience affects him, and he's called by Jesus to go to the Gentiles To open their eyes from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God so that they might receive forgiveness of sins and the inheritance that Jesus wants for them. So he spends three years in Arabia. And then he goes, back to, he goes back to Damascus. He ministers there. He, uh, he causes so much trouble. They have to lower him down from the wall. He, he goes to Jerusalem. He meets the, the apostles, and, 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 and he goes back to Damascus. And he's, for 14 years, he doesn't do what Jesus told him to do. He is told to go to the Gentiles. I'm sending you to the Gentiles. And for 14 years, he doesn't do that. Maybe he does it in a little way, but he doesn't really go until Acts 13. Prophets and teachers are together. They're ministering to the Lord. And then the local church hears the word of God, and it says this. Send out Paul and Barnabas to do the work I have called them to. They've already been called, and now it's time to go, The local church is sending them out to, to fulfill the calling. And so just because you're called, just because it's burning, doesn't mean it's time to go yet. It's, it's, there, there's a preparation. There's a time where, where God gets you ready to the fullness of what God has called you to do. And then he goes out. And, of course, that first missionary journey from Antioch changed the whole world. All right, so that's, that's the author, what we know about him. Here's, here's point to when, from where, and to whom did he write. Scholars believe that Paul wrote from Corinth sometime in 57 AD. Uh, there's a number of reasons why it's so exact, but let me just give you a few things. He, is, he tells in, later in Romans that he's taking a gift to Jerusalem Ask them to pray for that, to go well, so that he can come to them next. In Romans 15, he says, when he's done in the East, he wants to come to them so that they can send him out west to Spain. Um, and he explains it to him. He said, that gospel's already reached you. I want to go where the gospel hasn't come yet. I do want to come to you. I want to bless you. I want to inspire you. But I, 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 my heart is burning For those places that have not yet heard the gospel. And we'll talk about that in a moment. He has got good friends in the church at Rome. In Romans 16, he lists a whole group of people that he is friends with, even though he's never been to Rome. And we have to ask the question, how did Paul get all of these friends that are in Rome... Rome is a long way from Antioch. It's a long way from Jerusalem. How would he have all of these friends in Rome? Well, and I didn't know any of this until I studied it, so don't feel bad if this is the first time you've heard of it. Um, The Jews were all kicked out of Rome in 49 A.D., Claudius, the emperor at that time, makes a decree that all of the Jews have to leave Rome. Why? Why? Why, why, why would you possibly kick out an entire people group from a city? Suetonius, who's a first-century historian, writes about it. Here's what he says. In 49 A.D., Claudius made an edict commanding all the Jews to leave Rome because they were creating a disturbance at the instigation of Crestus. Scholars, almost unanimously, scholars believe this is a a reference to Christ. This is one of the first references to Christ for a number of reasons. One, uh, the fact that Suetonius doesn't have the name right actually makes it more authentic (laughs) because oftentimes christians would go back over documents and rewrite things the fact that it's not quite right is actually makes it more authentic to authorities that are deciding whether this is real or not and secondly why would you kick all of the jews out of a city it can't be one person It has to be somebody that is causing a lot of trouble. Otherwise, you just take that one person out. But it's Christianity has exploded in Rome, and the Jews are attacking it. This is before any apostles get there. And the Jews are causing all of this trouble at the instigation of Crestus, Jesus Christ. The doctrine of Christ is causing trouble. And so he makes a decree to kick all of the Jews out of Rome. This is how Paul meets a lot of Jewish Christians. See, he didn't just kick out, uh, he just kicked out Jews. It didn't matter whether they were Christians or not. L- listen to Acts 18, 2 through 3. Believe me, this all there's a reason why I'm going into all this. Acts 18, 2 and 3. Speaking of Paul. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working. For by trade, they were tent makers. So Aquila and Priscilla are sent with all of the Jews, and Paul meets them along the way. He becomes friends with them. They work together. He does not convert them. They are already converted, and I'm going to tell you in just a moment why I believe that. I believe that Priscilla and Aquila were probably at Pentecost. Remember, at Pentecost, Jews had come from all over the Roman Empire. They came back for the feast, and the Holy Spirit came, and that day, 3,000 were saved, and then they went back to all of their places. And I think the church at Rome started right back then without any apostles being there, just regular people filled with the Holy Spirit had started it. <clears throat> Why do I believe this? Listen to what he says about Priscilla and Aquila in Romans 16, 3. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, for they risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets in their house. Paul sees Priscilla and Aquila as equals. They are fellow laborers. They are fellow apostles, if you will. In 49 AD, they are sent out at the order of Claudius. The Jews go all over the empire. Paul meets a lot of them. In 54 AD, Claudius dies. Nero becomes the new emperor. First thing he does is welcomes all the Jews back. So they all, they've, been, they've been at large for five years. In 54 AD, they come back. All the Jews are welcome back, and all the Jewish Christians come back. And so they are now not only in the church at Rome, but, um, Priscilla and Aquila have a church in their house. So it's three years since they have been back, however many years they, it was that they came back. It was enough that they were established um, back in Rome and were Paul's friends. Why all this is important will become very clear in just a few moments. But first, we're going to go to why did Paul write Romans? Two reasons. The first is to establish the truth in the Gospels. To establish the church in the Gospels' central truth. Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous will live by faith. So the year is uh, 1517. There's a young monk named Martin Luther. And Martin Luther has had this fear of God experience that took him into the priesthood. He is a Catholic priest. He has become a monk. His whole life is devoted to God. And he is, with all of his heart and all of his soul and all of his strength, trying to please God. But he finds he can't. He finds himself becoming more and more angry... At God, that he's serving, that has called him, and more and more depressed. And he spends hours on his knees fasting and praying. He goes way beyond what any of the other monks do. And finally, the head monk says, This isn't good. What's going on with you is not good. We're going to give you a new assignment. So he sends him to Wittenberg to teach the Bible. Now, at this point, he hadn't even really read the Bible. And now he's having to teach the Bible, so he goes to the original texts, and his job is to study the Bible and to share it with people, to teach it. So as he is contemplating Romans, Romans 1, he has an experience, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read, this is from his journal I labored diligently and anxiously as to how to understand Paul's word. The expression, quote, the righteousness of God blocked the way. Because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous. Although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner Therefore, I did not love a righteous and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Then I grasped that the righteousness of God is that righteousness by which, through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us by faith. Thereupon, I felt upon myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise, I broke through. And as I had formerly hated the expression, quote, the righteousness of God, I now began to regard it as my dearest and most comforting word. One man read the Bible He went back to the Bible. He got out of superstition. He got out of just what everybody was thinking. And he went and what the Bible actually said about God that is true. And the Holy Spirit illuminated his reading of the word of God. And he saw it. He saw it. The righteousness of God that God demands. He supplied That Jesus came, he died on the cross, Jesus became sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God through him. That God gives righteousness as a gift to sinners by sheer mercy. This dawned on his heart and the whole world became, started to change. The joy of God's love and God's grace offered in Christ by sheer mercy so burned in his heart, it turned over the entire empire. And of course, the Protestant Reformation, you can read all about it. But here's the stunning thing: 200 years later, the year now is 1738, there is a man named John Wesley very, very much like Martin Luther. He is very serious about God. He is going to Oxford, and he has started a club called the Holiness Club, and he's got in there his brother Charles. He's got George Whitfield. He's got a couple other people, and they are going to please God, and they have got a schedule. There's a reason. He's, he's the father of the Methodist church. They're, it's all because of these methods that he had. We, they get up at four in the morning. They pray for an hour. Then they read the Bible for an hour. Then they go visit the poor for an hour. Then they do this. There were rules for absolutely everything in their life. It, from early morning to late at night, everything was about what God wanted us to do, and we're going to obey this. So... Logically, he needs to be a missionary eventually. So he goes, I've got the dates here, in 1735, he goes to America to win the Indians, to win the heathen in America. Um, But something happens when he is on the boat. (laughs) He meets this group called the Moravians. And the the Moravians are having worship services all the time. And he would go in there and watch where children would be worshiping in complete freedom and joy. And it was amazing to him. But what really changed him was a storm came and it looked like they were all going to die on the ocean. And he is terrified for his life. And the Moravians are having a worship service. He's like, are you, do you people know what's going on? We are about to die. Yeah, isn't it wonderful? <laughs> and he, doesn't, he, can, he cannot understand what is going on. And so he, he meets a guy named Peter Bowler and it explains to him this fear, and Peter Bowler says, "Um, John, do you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins? And John Wesley says, I believe that Christ died for the sins of the whole world. Peter Bowler says, yeah, but did he die for your sins? And this is what gripped him. So he goes, he, he, he ministers to the Indians. If you can imagine somebody not saved trying to minister to the Indian, it was a disaster, absolute disaster. He gets back to England and uh, meets with Peter Bowler and says, what, what, am, I, what am I supposed to do? I, I know I don't, really, I don't really believe yet. <laughs> Peter Bowler says this, preach faith until you have faith. So, here it is, 1738, May 24th. He writes in his journal this. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street. It was a Moravian society, where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Guys, this doesn't sound like much, but let me tell you what happens next. John Wesley starts preaching that you need to be born again. You need to have an encounter with God. And pretty soon, he gets kicked out of the churches because it's emotionalism. And he, he was the best member of the Church of England. He was the most obedient, the most submissive, but they wouldn't let him preach at churches. So he writes in his journal, I started preaching in fields. And it was a good thing because pretty soon 10,000 were coming to hear John Wesley. The poor, the coal miners, the, Whitfield and Wesley started preaching. It's called the First Great Awakening. It was like fire, all over England, all over Europe, and then all over America. Jonathan Edwards is the guy that's here, but it was the pre- it w- the preaching first of Whitfield and then of Wesley that set a fire, an awakening, that said God loves people and He wants to encounter people with His grace in Christ. Do not underestimate the power of the Word of God illuminating, illuminated by the Spirit of God in the human heart. A fire can start, guys, that changes everything. So a few weeks ago, Man's breakfast, we have a guy named Russ Bechtold. Does that name sound familiar at all? That's familiar. Yeah, that's Dave's dad. Dave's dad is speaking at our, he's a pastor down in Chicago, and while Dave's dad is up here speaking to us, Dave actually wasn't even here. Dave was down in Chicago doing a retreat for some churches. Anyway, whatever. Um, So very unlike Dave, who was kind of this huge rebel, he had hair down to here, and Dave Dave got converted probably when he was 19, Russ was the exact opposite of his son. He was Mr. Rule Keeper. He's a good boy, right from the beginning. Whatever was right was what he gave himself to. And so when he got into high school, he was a freshman in high school, and there was a, a group called Campus Life, and, and uh, they were studying the Bible. He's like, that's a, that's a good thing to do. That's a right thing to do. And so he became part of that Bible study, and he was so faithful and such a, a good person, they put him in charge. He was one of the leaders, But there was something very troubling that was happening. Each week at the group, one of the leaders would share their testimony of how Jesus had changed them. And he dreaded this because he didn't have have an encounter. He didn't have an experience of his own. Finally, the dreaded day came and they asked him to share his testimony of how he came to Christ. And being a good person, upright person, he gave his testimony. And he said, he told us, by the way, I did ask him permission. He was in church the next time. I said, Russ, can I tell the whole congregation? He said, absolutely, whatever, whatever you want to say. So, so he, he, he lies. <laughs> he knows what you're supposed to say by what everybody else had said. So he says all of the right things, even though he knows it's not true. Now it wasn't that Russ had not accepted Christ. He prayed many times. Every time there was a chance to pray the sinner's prayer, he would pray the sinner's prayer. So the, the week after he shares his testimony, let's call it a non-testimony, <laughs> it's Saturday morning, and he is crying out to God. He is begging it. He's admitting to God, I'm, I'm, I'm a liar. And God shows him something. He shows him that Russ is trying to earn his way, and he's even treated the sinner's prayer as another work. This is my part. This is my work, so that Christ himself would not be the Savior, but my prayer would be the Savior. And he see, he comes to the absolute end of himself, of his prayer, of his ability, and casts himself on Jesus alone. And he has an encounter with God where he knows that he knows that he knows. And the rest is history. That fire that started that day called him into the ministry. He's pastored all these years. He My, oh, my, he parented Dave, if you can imagine that. (laughs) Stunning. The righteousness of God. Paul wants them to be established in the real gospel, which isn't about man. It is about God. But there is a second reason that he writes to Rome. Many many scholars have, have been confused by the whole letter to the Romans. People have called it Paul's general treatise to, of Christianity, and then chapters 9 through 11 are like a parenthesis in his general treatise, which, which deals with the, the Jews and the Gentiles in 9-11 and God's cosmic plan for the Jews and the Gentiles, and they don't really know where to put it, but this is a general treatise that Paul is giving for all Christians everywhere, and not one of these letters that's an occasional letter. An occasional letter means something's going on, and Paul is writing as a response to what is going on. Well, a brilliant man named David Pawson, he's a theologian, I read his thing on Romans, and I'm like, oh my, this is it. This is so right. He shows overwhelmingly, this is an occasional letter. Here's what's going on in the church at Rome. Starts at Pentecost. By 49 AD, it is a vibrant church. It is Jewish-led. All of the first believers are Jewish. Gentiles are part of the church, but they aren't leading the church. The Jews are leading the church. So Gentiles are in, but it's Jewish-led in 49 AD all the Jews have to leave. All the Jewish Christians have to leave. All the leaders leave for 5 years, Gentiles start leading that church. So now, 5 years later, church is growing, but now the Gentiles are all leading the church their way. And now the Jews in 54 AD come back. Who is going to lead this church? It's it's a mess. The Jews have got their Jewishness as part of Christianity. The Gentiles have renounced Jewishness, have really dishonored Jewishness, and are are running from Judaism, and it it is a mess. What is the real gospel? How does this fit? How do Gentiles and Jews relate together? What is right? There is, clearly people have been writing to Paul, and there are many, many instances, and I had... Like I said, 20 points all the way through, starting Romans, two all the way through. This is the one theme all the way through. The gospel is for Jews and Gentiles, and God's calling us to be one. God's calling to put our differences aside on the non-essential things, and we need to be one in Christ. And here's how it works. And he makes one argument all the way through the book of Romans, which I'm not going to give you today, because... I crossed it out. (laughs) But we're going to be in this for like 31 weeks, so trust me, you'll get plenty. All right. I want to end today by giving you... uh, I I was reading a a commentary on Romans by Tim Keller. Tim Keller is a um, contemporary, really great theologian, thinker, writer, and rather than... Than me try to just tell you each point. It, this is what Tim Keller says. I just the, here's here's point four. Thoughts from Tim Keller. Just the whole point. It's just going to be thoughts that he had that I'm just they were so great. I'm just going to give them to you. Here's the first one. This is from Romans one. One through seventeen. First, the first thought is the gospel. The gospel means good herald. What Tim Keller said about it is an emperor, a Roman emperor winning a battle that has secured his authority and brought peace would send heralds to declare his victory, peace, and authority. So the gospel is an announcement. It's a declaration. The gospel is not advice to be followed. It is good news about what has been done the king has won a great battle that has secured victory and peace and his authority everywhere for any any heart that will simply believe the proclamation of the gospel second thought the content of the gospel Is God's son The gospel is about Jesus It is God's gospel And it is about his son Jesus Christ our Lord So here's what he says The gospel centers on Jesus It is about a person Not a concept It is about him Not us We never grasp the gospel until we understand that it is not fundamentally a message about our lives, our dreams, or our hopes. The gospel speaks about and transforms all of those things, but only because it isn't about us. So the gospel is about Jesus. If you try to take the gospel and make it about you, and make it, this is just all about God helping me with my hopes, my dreams, my life. This is to improve my life. You're going to be very disappointed by the gospel because that's not what the gospel is. It's not about you. It's about him. Now, when we realize that, when we take the gospel on its own terms... It transforms our dreams, our hopes, and our lives because Jesus has the proper place. Do you see how tempting it is to usurp the gospel and make it about something that it's not about? Okay, here's number three. This is my last one, and then I've got two stores. Paul says, I am obligated. The word means indebted. To both the Greeks and the non-Greeks, to the wise and to the foolish, I'm indebted to them with the gospel. So, here we go. Here's Tim Keller. Paul has never met the Roman church, far less the greater population of Rome. So in what sense is he in debt to them? It is illustrative to think about how I can be in debt to you. First, you may have lent me $100, and I am in debt to you until I pay it back. But second, someone else may have given me $100 to pass on to you, and I am in debt to you until I hand it on. It is the second sense that Paul is obligated to everyone, everywhere. God has shared the gospel with him, but God has also commissioned him to declare it to others. So Paul owes the gospel to others. So God hasn't just saved Paul. But God has commissioned him to go and take the good news, this proclamation, to other people. So Paul has an obligation from God God who loves these people, who's given $100 to him, and this doesn't have your name on it. It's got other people's names. In fact, you need to take it to everybody because I want to forgive everybody. I want to save everybody. I want to bring this gift of righteousness to everybody. Paul, you are in charge. You are obligated. I've given you this so that you could give it to other people. And Paul, this ran Paul's life. This this sense of obligation... He said, I am, the, the love of Christ constrains me that I must deliver what God has given to other people. So what does this have to do with us? This has everything to do with us. Acts chapter 10, verse 38, how God anointed. Anointed, that's, a, that's the Holy Spirit coming on a person. Not to save them, but to minute for ministry. Power to be a minister. Power to go out. Power, this is, the Spirit of God came on him at his baptism for ministry. He, he was born of the Spirit. He had the Holy Spirit from birth. But now he was anointed for ministry. And how he went about doing good taking the goodness of God and just taking it everywhere he went under the anointing of the holy spirit releasing those that were under the power of satan so here it is every one of us have been anointed Some, like Paul, are anointed to preach. Their primary thing is preaching. They need to preach. Other people help them preach and empower them to preach and send them to preach. We'll talk about that when we get later on. Paul is, he's he's to talk. He's been gifted to talk. But all of us have been anointed all of us have been anointed Paul says i'm going to i want to bring a spiritual gift to you and i want to receive whatever spiritual gifts god has given you we're all we've all been anointed for other people To love them, to help them, to serve them, to give them a taste of the goodness of God. We live in a world that's under darkness, under demonic oppression, consumed by self, consumed by darkness, believing lies about God, who God is, what God thinks about, and they're trapped. They're trapped in meaningless, purposeless lives, and God has anointed us to give them good news So I have a, a pastor friend. These last two stories are going to be about two of my friends. One is a pastor that I went on retreat with. I told about that a few weeks ago, and I picked him up in Spring Green. He pastors a church in Spring Green, and, and so it was just the two of us riding back, and we got chatting about all kinds of things, and he told me a story, and I, I said, bro, would you mind if I told this story to our congregation? And he said, "Not, nah, not at all. You go, go for it. It was when he was a youth pastor in Michigan, they had a very successful youth group in a large, a large church, and there was a youth worker in that church named Trisha. and he said, Tricia, um, she was part of our leadership, and we loved having her there, um, but she had a lot of brokenness in her own life, and she was one of the youth that kind of grew up, and, and she shouldn't be in the youth group, but anyway. they made her part of the, the leadership team, and... and She was just. This was her family, and she was one of the youth leaders. and And one specific night, they came to youth group. And after the group was over, um, my friend Kendall had an experience with God. And here's what God spoke to him: Go hug Trisha. That's weird. He's married at this time. But he's it's so clear he's going to obey God. So he goes over and he announces to Trisha, "Trisha, I am now going to hug you <laughs> because God told me to hug you." So with that preparation, he hugs Trisha. And Tricia starts weeping convulsively. And she says to him, I I have to talk to you and Julie. His wife's name is Julie. I have to talk to you and Julie right now. And so she is a mess. They get into this other room where it's just the three of them, and she says this to them. She says, I... uh, this was my last night at youth group, and it was also my last night being a Christian. I told God, unless somebody gives me a hug tonight, God, I, 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 you're, you, you tell me you love me. It, it, everybody says you love me, but I have to have something more. Unless somebody hugs me tonight, I'm done. Do you see that God gave something to Kendall that wasn't for him? He gave him $100 to give to somebody else. He, he was under an obligation to give what God had given to him to somebody else. And her life was changed forever by that simple act of giving someone else what God had given to him. So here's the second story. Does everybody remember two weeks ago Pastor Ed was here? I, I just so enjoyed him. And uh, he, uh, he, I got to spend some time with him and, and he told me this story and I said, bro, do you mind if I tell that story to our congregation? He said, no, go ahead. So he, he speaks in public schools a lot of times. And remember, on abstinence, they, sex ed. He's, he, he brings the message of sexual abstinence in public schools. Well, he told me about a, a, a time in Georgia recently. And the presentation was so powerful that the principal said to the students, if you have a question for ed, you, you can stay out of classes as long as you, you, you just deal with whatever you need to deal with. We're going to go back to class, but if you, if you need time, then go ahead. So he's got a, he's got a line of kids that want to talk to him. And so he's talking to them one at a time. And, and in that line, up to him comes a 17-year-old, clearly like a football player, big, big, strong guy. And he gets right up to his face like this. And he says, I'm gay. What are you going to do about that? He's just angry. And Ed lays a hand on his shoulder. And he says, Son, when you were eight years old, you were molested by your uncle. Tears start coming down his face, and he says, how could you possibly know that? And Ed said, here's why, I'm a Christian, and Jesus loves you, and when you came up so angry, he spoke to me and told me that's what had happened. And this young man had an encounter with the Holy Spirit. He was overwhelmed with the Holy Spirit. He, he was like stuck to a chair for the afternoon. He stayed there the whole afternoon while Ed did all these other... And by the end of the day, Ed was able to lead this young man to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. He was given... Ed was given something not for him. Do you see why 1 Corinthians 14:1 says, "Pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts." <laughs> love people so much that you want more for them than what a human being could give them. Do you see that that God speaking, God reaching through us could change the whole world? Yes. So here it is, guys. Here's my closing. I believe this with all of my heart. God has given $100 to City Church that doesn't belong to us. It is his goodness. It is the taste of his goodness. It's who he is. His beauty, his power, his glory. He's, he's saved us. Yes, he saved us. It's got to be first for us. Absolutely. We all have to have that encounter with the goodness of God. And you'll have a chance to, this morning if you hadn't haven't yet. But then he's got people. He wants us to think about this. There's not a person out there that he doesn't love as much as he loves you and me. There's not a person, no matter how dark it is, no matter how horrible their life is, no matter what they're stuck in, it has not changed God's feelings. Did you read that song about relenting? That that many waters cannot quench his love. Many waters, your sins, your evil, your, what you believed, your anger against God, whatever you've done, wherever you are, it hasn't quenched his love. He loves you. Amen. He is excited about you. Amen. And he wants us to take his goodness. And he wants us to, it says that Jesus went out, he was anointed, and he just says this, he went out doing good. Wherever he went, he just did good. Maybe it's giving a hug. Maybe it's giving a gift. Maybe it's giving a hand. But those little acts, those little seeds of goodness, guys, they break the power of darkness. They break the cynicism. They break the fear. Do not underestimate the power of goodness given in the name of God for Jesus' sake and for his love. This is how the world will change. I believe this with all of my heart. God gave Martin Luther, his goodness. And he exploded. A fire started burning of God's love and grace, and it led to a reformation of all of Europe. God burned in a young man named John Wesley. And they kicked him out of the churches, so he had to go out of the fields. And God brought thousands and thousands to the fields because God loves People. He loved John Wesley, but he gave him something to give to others. Okay. Hey, here it is. I must. I must. I must. If you did not hear this message, please go online and hear it. Ed preached it. I must be about my father's business. Paul says, I'm obligated. I must. I must. I must share the gospel. I must give my gift to the world because he's so, so good. All right, I'm done. Let's, can we? mm.